0: is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Great to be back. I got a couple of great interviews. One interview is our old friend John Cribb. John Cribb, of course, wrote the famous book, uh, Old Abe. It's a novel, historical novel. It's excellent. Such a good book. He's one of my favorite guys to talk to. We're going to talk about, um, well, Abe Lincoln, Gettysburg Address, uh, and some other things. But also, we'll talk about, it's like a book Friday. It's a book Friday. Chris Fenton, who is, it was a... Uh, top level executive at the highest level of Motion Pictures, and knew everybody. I'm friends with Kobe Bryant because he was an LA guy, and uh, and all these movies, big movies. Uh, Iron Man Three was at the centerpiece of this book. It's called Feeding the Dragon. We'll talk with him, his perspective from about 2000 to 2014. He worked in China, and he saw the relationship change from a nation that wanted to welcome Hollywood. To a nation that was deciding, hey, they figured it out for themselves, and maybe they don't need Hollywood. And it was very interesting. So we'll talk with him and uh, talk about his book, Feeding the Dragon. So I look forward to that. All right. What you need to know today, I just want to give you an update on the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial. And uh, as we're doing this show, I haven't seen a couple, I haven't looked in a few, few hours at some of the coverage. But I, here's, what, here's what you need to know. The And I told you this earlier in the week, but it's getting worse. Uh, the setup that is happening in the, in the mainstream media, the fake news media, big media, and the narrative machine is to set us up for race riots. Now, I'm a little surprised that they're going to do this under Joe Biden. Because if you noticed, all the race riots stopped when Joe Biden, quote unquote, won the election. Everybody stopped doing that. But what you need to know right now is that they're doing everything they can the, the media and big tech and, of course, the government, which is our narrative machine, to drive the narrative that this is somehow racism, structural racism, white supremacy. And did you know, I'm going to tell you some facts. Did you know that the, the, the guys that were killed that were attacking Rittenhouse, all white? Did you know that? There was a liberal commentator who just yesterday, I think it was Thursday afternoon, she said, I didn't even know. I thought they were African-American, the people that were shot. Two people were killed, one was wounded, and they were all white. Rittenhouse is white. The prosecutors are white, the judge is white, everybody's white. I'm not sure where the white supremacy is coming in, except that now we have the media, big media, and big tech, tying together the homicide trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, which is technically true. It is a trial, he's being tried for a number of counts, including homicide, but the homicide trial of Kyle Rittenhouse and the implications of an all-white jury deciding to not send him to jail. You see the implication? The implication is that if it was a black guy or a black defendant, they would get a different treatment. That's the implication. The judge in this case, i forget his name, and I'm not going to bother saying it because you don't need to have it in your head either. But what you need to know is the media has begun attacking him. He he, he honored on Veterans Day, he honored veterans in his courtroom. I got to think almost every judge does something like that. If you've ever worked in a courthouse, and I have, you know, I was a clerk for a year. You, you learn that the, the psychology and sort of the, um, the, the spirituality of a courthouse is a very distinct thing in America. It's actually wonderful. It's a kind of everybody's kind of there for honorable reasons at whatever level you're at. And people have a certain esprit de corps. And a lot of people are veterans. A lot of men and women are veterans in that area, partly, I think, because a lot of the hiring practices encourage, you know, for bailiffs and other positions and, of course, sheriffs, deputies and and others. These are former these are former military. So the judge is being attacked by The New York Times and others saying that he singled out and honored veterans. And this is a worrisome thing. He's being singled out because he made a joke. They were waiting for lunch and he said the lunch was delayed by the supply chain. Well, the food was Asian food. I don't know if it was Vietnamese or Thai or Chinese, but he's being singled out. He said, This is Asian Americans are uncomfortable. He's a bigot. You see what's going on? And, and the power of, of Don Lemon on CNN saying, If Kyle Rittenhouse isn't convicted, it's a real inca- uh, 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 miscarriage of justice. And all this drumbeat on Twitter, the way you hear the depictions, the summaries of what's going on makes it sound like Rittenhouse is a bad guy. Again, he's in the midst of the uh, innocent until proven guilty portion of when you get tried for a crime in the middle of that, right? So watching this, I can feel it building towards a very bad situation. And what you're going to see, I fear, is that the irresponsible big media, irresponsible big tech, aided by big government... Right. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, as a campaign, as a campaigner in the campaign, he said that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was a white supremacist with no evidence. He's now the president of the United States. He said that. And so we're building towards this. And, you know, and here's the details. It's not yet winter. So you don't have freezing cold and snow. You know, this is something I learned a long time ago from some of my friends that were cops. He said in the middle of winter. If you're in cold places, right? If you're in Florida, it doesn't apply. But if you're in, in uh, St. Louis, where I'm from, or Washington, D.C., or other places, in the middle of winter, people don't like to go out and riot. They don't like to protest. It's too cold. There's going to be snow and sleet and everything else. If it's the middle of summer, it can sometimes be similar because it's so hot. But you get spring, you go to the spring, or you get fall, late fall, the weather's not bad. I, it, I think that this should be setting up for more race riots. And I, I, what you need to know is, It is completely and entirely the fault of the three components of the narrative machine in this case. Big media for not telling the truth. On Twitter, you'll see liberals who say, oh, I didn't know that the people that were killed by Rittenhouse were white. Oh, I'm watching this and Rittenhouse clearly was in self-defense. You'll see some liberals say that and they'll be attacked because big media, CNN, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow. I mean, they're just going wild, lying about it. So that's big media. Big tech, same deal. Big tech is riding along. Why? By the way, why? Well, I'll finish. And then big government. Big government in this case is the prosecutors there. They're ignoring any of the facts, any of the truth. They're just trying to case because they want to be on TV. And here's the trick. When they're done, if they get riots, you know what big tech and big media get? Better ratings. People will tune in to see burning buildings. You know, uh, uh, Clashes between uh, uh, protesters and uh, law enforcement with tear gas, it's, it's big. Trust me. The, so you have a, you have, what you need to know is you have the narrative machine is aimed towards what? More money for cable TV, more money for Facebook, more money for big media, more money for big tech. That's what they're doing. And they're tearing the country apart, literally. And that's what my fear is. Now, what do you do about it? One thing you do about it is keep talking about it. So you try to say, "Hey, look at this. Look at the Rittenhouse thing," and you hope that more and more liberals—and you do see some of them—you are actually seeing some of them say, "What is this? This isn't right," and try to drive the attention to it, so people will back off. But I'm not—I'm not optimistic, not when you turn on CNN and watch what they say, and—and and that there's not executives in these businesses that don't say, "Hey, you may be crazed, Don Lemon." You may be off on a tangent. you got to stop that, though. It's not responsible. It's hurting the country. But we're way past that. All right, that's what you need to know. That's my update on Rittenhouse. I'm not optimistic, as you can hear. I'm pretty worried about it. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, all right, everybody, let's take a break. We come back. we got two great book, uh, books to talk about, two interviews. We'll be back in a moment. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Our next guest, it's a fascinating book that he's written. His name is Chris Fenton. His book is called Feeding the Dragon, uh, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American business. Published in 2020, a Post Hill Press book, but it reads like it could have been published yesterday because uh, especially we'll talk in a moment about some of what's happened since uh, Chris finished the book. Well, Chris Fenton himself... It was a very successful, is a very successful businessman, somebody who had a, a massive role in um, in uh, the American, um, I guess you say, Hollywood or uh, movie making or entertainment with a company called DMG Entertainment Motion Picture Group, as well as another portion of DMG. So well positioned to talk about this. So first, Chris, welcome to the program. How are you?
3: Ed, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: Well, so the my listeners know I love to read, and I got your book only yesterday, but I powered my way through very much of it. Well, not all of it, I'd say, but they know I do it. A che- I start with a a, a cheat uh, a plan. I go from the first chapter or two, and then the last chapter or two. But here's one I want to tell you: the dedication, or not the dedication, even your dedication is, I think, to your family. But the the opening on the fr- front page of the book it says: self reflection is an extremely powerful force. When I started writing this, I felt passion as a voice of dissent. By the end, I learned I was complicit. And then a few more sentences. And then you say, and uh, uh, we either continue to coexist through the bond formed by exchange of culture and commerce, or we consciously start a cold war. At the very end of the book, the postscript, you say, I finished the book in January 2020. And three things happened. And then you go on. But Kobe Bryant was one thing you mentioned, which had a massive cultural impact. But then you talk about COVID-19, which, you know, is a marker in the world, in, in world history, right? The change. So almost... Is the book out of date? I mean, do you feel like what's happened in the last year and a half has already changed where we are?
3: Wow, that's a great question. Well, to tell you the truth, my my goal with the book was really to write something timeless rather than timely. So if if, if you notice, and, and I know you've only read part of it so far, and, and by the way, I'm humbled and honored that you're, you're getting through it, um, is yeah. that I, I end the book roughly around 2014 because the goal – was to show essentially this mission of globalism that I was, um, you know, that I really followed and believed in, which was this idea of the more products and services we got of America into the uh, into China. The, the better it was for the United States overall. We would grow GDP, we would um, create jobs, and we would disseminate the aspirational qualities of democracy into a communist country. And it wasn't just me. It was all the other people engaged in that that, that commerce and cultural exchange between the two countries that believed in those principles. And I really wanted to showcase how we got here today by showcasing essentially the years 2000 to 2014, which really culminated in this um, massive success that we had with a movie called Iron Man 3, a big Marvel Disney property. So the goal of the book, even today, was to say, hey, this is what we were under. This was the mission that we believed in. But here is the detrimental effects it's had on the long-term health of the United States of America. And if we continue in this engagement the way it has been, It's going to get worse and worse and accelerate in that deterioration as we go on. So we need to really consider how we're going to change the dynamic. And like you said at the beginning of the book, I really don't think Cold War or war is what we want.
2: Yeah, no, no. no. Nobody should want that. I agree with you. That, 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 that's a loser. Uh, Chris Fenton is the author. of The book is Feeding the Dragon. Post Hill Press. Everywhere books are available. Really interesting. By the way, I, I undersold myself. I've read about 90% of the book. I just it was jumping around like crazy. But but, And I want to ask you about one thing about the through line. You open with um, you're, – you're all freaked out because – The Iron Man 3 uh, red carpet's about to happen. You're in Beijing, I think it was, and and the Iron Man 3, Robert Downey Jr.'s people are like, hey, we need more security. Okay, so you're going through that. But what I read in there, and as we go through the whole book, um, what changed by the time you got to Iron Man 3 was 10 years earlier— when you came to town, the Chinese regime, they wanted to make the world perfect. They would, you know, the, the NBA, Kobe, they would stop the traffic. They put the military police out. By the time you get to 2014, I guess it was, you got Iron Man 3. They want you there. They want you to succeed. But they're already kind of saying, you know, you need us too, right? We know you're going to make the money. And it feels the way you describe it, like China's starting to uh, have an upper, not have a stronger hand in the relationship and, and you're starting to feel it now, four years or seven years later from 2014. To, in some ways, do they have does the Chinese government China, have a heavier hand? I mean, you know, it doesn't look like Iron Man three had it, but there's certainly a- a- accusations that some other movies in the last five years have changed their plot line or at least the uniforms of the uh, Red Dawn guys or whatever because of pressure from China. Do they have the upper hand by now?
3: Wow, I'm humbled that you picked up sort of that that subtle thread, but it's 100% true. I mean, the goal for us was just to get fish into the market so they could consume it, right? right? But what, they, right, what the right. Chinese Communist Party wanted was us to teach them how to fish. So um, in the mm-hmm. in the business of Hollywood, they said, hey, we'll let your movies in but we want you to help train us to become world-class filmmakers ourselves and to build an industry around filmmaking that can, can, that can cater to our own public. And they do that, rinse and repeat, with every other industry. So what we've seen over time is, yes, in their infancy stages in the early 2000s, they really needed us and they wanted us in there to help them. And then as they started to gain leverage and as they started to gain know-how and as they started to be able to do that same thing themselves in various industries, they start to shut us out. So if you look at Hollywood's market share in 2012, when we did a movie, Looper, which I talked about, a Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie in this in the book, um, we had a, roughly an 80% market share as far as movies in that market. We cut to today, it's down to 8%. Last year, it was wow. 15%. The year before, it was 32%. And you can literally look at that same market share decline and look at it in terms of electric vehicles, to. Air- airplanes to Starbucks imitators to Nike imitators, everything is going the same direction. So, to answer your question, 100%, they need us less and less, and the leverage has gained more and more on that side of the Pacific.
2: So, but Chris, would you say that at 8% uh, market share from Hollywood, who's got the other 92%? Is it homemade China? Is there a Chinese Hollywood that's making action films?
3: Yes, 100 percent they have a movie that they made oh. themselves called "The Batter of Lake Chengq," which is um, right now approaching the one billion dollar mark as far as U.S. dollars generated from the box office just in China from a Chinese movie.
2: Wow. Okay, so that's what they're doing now. Uh, another part of the book and I'm sorry I'm bouncing around a little but I want to cover some things and they, and I hope that my listeners will say I want to go read that book and and maybe we'll have you back on again uh, Chris. But another part of the book you refer to, I think it was Sandy Hook. Yeah, here it is. Sandy Hook. And you're talking about how when you're in China and and the TV is on, you know when something is censored, the screen if it's CNN or something will just go black, and it'll be black for the period of that report because they don't want you to see it. Then it'll come back on if you're to say at a hotel. And then they talk about Sandy Hook. They they uh, they let it play because I think they thought it shows America in this kind of hard time or whatever. But I don't care. I don't want to talk about Sandy Hook for a second. I want to ask you about the power of the communist, the government, the centralized government to control. You know, the message like we get angry in America. We're fighting with each other over MSNBC and CNBC or CNN lies and and Fox lies and who's lying fake news and all. And there's a lot of reason to be concerned about who's controlling what message. I'm I'm not I I am I'm I'm on that kind of team of what's happening here. But in China, they have a real command control of of uh, of of um, what you see and what the people see. And so can you really now, now that you're at your point, you are 2021, you've written the book, you've studied this. Can you expect that you could sort of infiltrate China with movies and images that will be acceptable and bring our values? Because I don't think the
3: regime will let us, will they? Well, it's 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 fascinating. And um, the answer to that is no, you can't expect that they're going to they look at Hollywood as a machine that creates propaganda from the West. So their goal was literally to learn how to fish from us so that they can create their own fish for that consumer market. And once they can do it and fill their theaters and make sure that that economy runs in that particular industry, they're going to shut Hollywood out all the way. So that ability Hmm. to uh, to, uh, bring in and disseminate the qualities of democracy there That uh, that door is closing quickly. And as far as their ability to control narrative, it is massively um, powerful and they are the best in the world at it. Imagine a country of one point four billion people where if if their version of MSNBC and Fox and OAN and CNN, they're all saying the same thing, the same angle, the same spin all day long. Right. That's what their people get from their news sources, from their uh, the Ministry of Propaganda, which oversees that, right? And it's so powerful, and it really can dictate the way the populace thinks there. In fact, right now, we're seeing nationalism really rise because of this dispute with the U.S., the, the tensions over Taiwan, and we're seeing that uh, disseminate through all kinds of consumer products coming from the West, right? There's this This hatred or this um, essentially resentment towards the West right now that is causing the pocketbooks to close for Western goods and services and open for the imitators that are made there in China.
2: So, again, we're talking with Chris Fenton. His book is Feeding the Dragon, and it's Post Hill Press. It's uh, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and uh, American businesses. Um, I I got, like, so many more questions, Chris. Uh, But one thing, though, is at this point, uh, when you you open the book, first maybe four chapters, I thought, okay— I got a guy here who's a big businessman, big success. He's seen it from the inside. He's going to tell me how we have to stay in this market. You know, we have to figure out how to make this market because it's good for us. It's good for our nation to be strong and have this uh, industry. By the end of the book, I thought, I think he's pretty much decided that I don't know if we can make it. And now, now seven years later from when you were talking about 2014, are you optimistic?
3: I'm not super optimistic. I think um, I'm very involved with Washington, D.C. and the us Asia Institute as a trustee. So I did a virtual delegation uh, for congressional members and, and the National People's Congress over the summer. So there's still dialogue going on between the two countries, which is key. We do not want a Cold War or war. I think there's a real opportunity to rebalance the playing field when it comes to trade and when it comes to cultural Um, exchange. I think there's simple things like the WTO redesignating China as a developed nation rather than a developing nation with the SEC um, enacting new accounting standards that apply to state-owned enterprises in China when they want access to our capital markets, just like every other company that needs access to our capital markets. There's a lot of ways to rebalance. And then on top of it, their encroachment on our free speech rights, the ability to shut down the NBA in their market because of something a GM of the Houston Rockets says or a player for the Boston Celtics says, that has got to stop. We have to back those people and those free speech rights, both from the government and from the partnerships that the NBA has so that we can push back on encroachment outside of the borders on our free speech rights. It's one thing to say something critical of China when you're inside China itself, but it should be a right. whole other thing when you're here on the United States of America criticizing China because they do that all day long to us and we don't retaliate against them like they do to right. us. Right, right.
2: Right. And let me ask on that one. Uh, you know, nobody nobody that's serious thinks that the Chinese aren't trying to influence uh, American life, uh tock or just in general. It's just not their style not to. Um, is there any way. We uh, Is there a black market for Internet films in China? Can, can people somehow get uh, satellite? You know, can Elon Musk do whatever he's doing with satellite Internet that could get people access to things so that you could break through? Or is there really a, a uh, what do they call it, the Chinese firewall, the Great Wall of China uh, uh, that blocks the Internet?
4: Well, the
3: firewall is extremely powerful. And, in fact, K, um, satellite feeds only come into expat Uh, areas of town and designated hotels, and that's why you're able to pick up like a CNN International there. Um, As far as the Internet itself, everything is off limits that the Chinese government wants off limits. The only way around that is a VPN service. But a lot of the VPN services are very difficult to use over there. So they can really prohibit platforms from reaching their audience or journalists reaching their audience or any messaging reaching their audience there inside those borders. And that's a real problem because here – Journalists from China Daily or Xinhua or, or from you know Global Times, they have full access to the people in the United States of America, and they have full access to mm-hmm. our platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. There's just no reciprocity on the other side of the Pacific for us.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Chris Fenton, last question. The book is Feeding the Dragon – Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American businesses. Notwithstanding what you said, you work with the American Asian Institute and all. Can you go back to China after writing this book?
3: You know, it's funny. I've been invited a couple of times. I, I don't think I'll go on any, some, on any sort of trip that isn't an official delegation. I, I do want to go back. I love the Chinese people. I love China itself. Um, our challenge is with the Chinese government. And, and that's something very important to bifurcate. Um, this is not about the people of China that are 1.4 billion strong, but are under a very, very strong totalitarian communist regime that tells them essentially what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to act.
2: Mm. It's fascinating. Chris uh, Fenton, thank you for the time. Thanks for writing the book. It's really important that you're out there. Uh, Post Hill Press put it out. Chris Fenton, Feeding the Dragon, available everywhere books are. His perspective as having been a uh, successful uh, executive in the movie industry, working in China, it's extraordinary. So thanks for the time, sir. Appreciate it.
3: Thank you, sir. Have me back anytime.
2: Okay, we'll, uh, we'll do it. We'll think, uh, we're going to find a, some reasons to do that. It's great. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up, as I mentioned, in the open with John Cribb, the author of Old Abe, a novel out, of course, from Republic Book Publishers. He's been a frequent guest on the program. He's kind of a pseudo co-host at this point. And um, his book, which came out in 2020, is is spectacular. It's uh, written as a uh, historical novel about um, the days right before Lincoln gets the nomination up to his death. And uh, really great. And one of the, the the parts of that, of course, is the trip up to uh, Gettysburg, where he does the Gettysburg Address. And uh, November nineteenth uh, is the anniversary, the hundred and fifty eighth anniversary. So, welcome back, John. How are you?
4: Hey, Ed. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. And I should I'll tell your audience, or my, my publisher will, will will be mad at me that the book is coming out in paperback. Old Abe is coming out in paperback. Uh, I think the 22nd of November is the release date. So oh, if anybody great. Once it's for Christmas, oh. that's a little bit cheaper, and the supply line will be open for that one. It's nothing else. You'll oh,
2: that's great. To, I'm, glad to, yeah. I, I, that's, I'm glad to know that. Good catch, and I'll make sure to promote that too. Uh, all right, so, Thank John, you. listen, all all, um, all radio is local or, or all radio is personal. My son, who's in seventh grade, has been studying Gettysburg and uh, and studying the Civil War, and, and he um, actually today— uh, went up to Gettysburg with his class a couple hours from our home in northern virginia and spent the day there and uh, was just telling me that the the teacher uh, was making him do uh, push-ups on uh, uh, cemetery ridge and, and different things <laughs> but anyway the, so i've been hearing all about it and and at the beginning at the beginning of killer angels the famous yeah. uh, michael shara book yeah. there is yeah. on, on a on, on the book on tape on audio, audible, not on tape, but on audible, um, Michael Shahar's son, Jeff, who became a writer in his own right, speaks about right. the book being written and taking almost a decade. And it got some awards, but it really didn't get famous. His dad was dead. Michael Shahar, the author, was dead. And then he mentions that Ron Maxwell created the movie Gettysburg, which is a great yeah. movie. And he's he's yeah. a guy from Virginia also. He lives actually out near Al Regnery, out, uh, the, the publisher of, of Republic Book Publishing. They live the out Republic, like yeah. 10 miles from each other. Anyway, but so here's the punchline. I email uh, Ron and I say, my son's going up to Gettysburg and as part of their school, they watched your movie. And he wrote back and said, boy, that's probably the last place in America they do because the wokeness has tried to neuter the Gettysburg. The famous movie is is too, uh, I guess, um, nice about Robert E. Lee and too supportive. Is that do, do you have a sense of that?
4: Well, I'm not surprised to hear that. I had no idea, and it is a good. It's a great movie. Um, I think it was a TBS production. One of the it's one of the one of the few good things that Ted Turner did, I guess. But it's a wonderful <laughs> movie based on a based on a wonderful book. But um, I'm not surprised uh, to hear that. And you know, there's a a, a very large statue of uh, Robert E. Lee on uh, the battlefield there, and you have to wonder if. So they're going to try to take that down because so they're taking it down every, every place else. But, um, well, and I'm so, glad and so how do that. you,
2: how, yeah, yeah. How do you square that? Again, we're talking with John Cribb, his book is old Abe with your understanding of Abe Lincoln. Um, he went to Gettysburg to give that speech,
4: right? Yes. He, it, why was that? Why, why did he go to Gettysburg to do that? Well, he went because he was invited to go, uh, to help dedicate a cemetery where thousands of soldiers had been, you know, to, to, to bury the soldiers that had been killed at Gettysburg um, and the Union soldiers. After the battle, the, the soldiers that fell on the field were just buried in temporary, you know, shallow, hastily drug, dug graves. And they would uh-huh. you know, put a board on the, on, the, on the grave if they knew who it was and write a name in pencil. And now these, hmm. you know, months later, these bodies were being moved into a permanent cemetery to honor the, the fallen Union soldiers um, and so Lincoln is invited to come give uh, some some remarks, and you know presidents back then didn't go around running around the country giving speeches all the time like they do today. Lincoln certainly didn't. But he made an exception in this case because, number one, he felt it was important to honor these fallen heroes. But secondly, the the war had entered a a different phase. The Northern Army had managed to turn back Lee's invasion of the North. But there was still a lot of hard fighting to come, and Lincoln knew that, and he wanted to speak to the country about the war. And he used his address uh, to do that.
2: So, but did he, was it, was it, um, was it instantly, uh, recognized? So again, we're talking with John Cribb, his book is Old Abe. And we're, we're referring to the fact that, uh, it was 158 years ago, uh, this November 19th, um, did, was it called, was it called the Gettysburg Address and instantly known what had happened or was that something that history understood in the months and years later?
4: Yeah, it was really the latter. Um, their initial reaction to it was, was mixed and uh, this may come as no surprise, but the media back then was uh, anything but unbiased. They were closely <laughs> uh-huh. aligned with the two political parties, Democrat and Republican. As a matter of fact, uh, the the uh, editor of the New York Times was also the chairman of the Republican National Committee, if you can believe that. my, my how wow. times have changed, right? Um, yeah. But so the anti-Lincoln Democrat papers either ignored it or panned it. Uh, the Chicago Times, for example, which was a— Democrat newspaper wrote that the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of Lincoln's speech. Uh, the Springfield Republican in Massachusetts, on the other hand, called it a perfect gem of a, of a speech. So it really de- depended on which newspaper you read. But having said that, it really did not take that long for Americans to realize that this was a profound, brilliant speech. And as newspapers reprinted it, it's, it's fame spread pretty quickly.
2: Uh, uh, again, John Cribb, the book is Old Abe, a novel from Republic Book Publishers, available in paperback in a few more weeks, uh, available anywhere you get books. Um, why was it so short? I know they didn't have, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have um, you know, the, the, they weren't doing it on C-SPAN, they didn't have uh, uh, microphones, uh, you know, and and so, but why, it still was yeah. remarkably short.
4: It was, yeah. Well, uh, two reasons. Number one, it was supposed to be short. Lincoln was invited by the committee uh, that was putting on the event uh, to come give a few appropriate remarks, as they put it in their invitation. Uh, the, uh, the main speaker of the day was a fellow named Edward Everett, and he was maybe the most renowned order of his day. He was, had been the president of Harvard. He had been governor of Massachusetts. He had been a senator, a congressman. He was, you know, he was a big deal. And he gave a two, two-and-a-half-hour blow-by-blow uh, oration uh, really describing the three-day battle in detail. And when you know, when when we hear two-hour speech, our first reaction is, "Get me out of here as, <laughs> as fast as I, as you can, hopefully before the speech begins." But back then, people liked that. I and mean, you know, this is before the days of TV and internet and. Uh, right, it, right. This was, you know, to them this was like almost like like watching an action movie for us today. So they they enjoyed it. Lincoln's job though was just to give a, a, a dedication statement. So that's number one reason. One reason it was so short. But there was actually another reason, um, and that was Lincoln knew that if he kept it very short, that newspapers could reprint it in its entirety, and ah, that's exactly what wow. happened. Yeah, newspapers around the country picked it up, and ran the whole speech because it would fit in one column. And they loved that because they were always looking for it. Wow. Copy. And Lincoln was a master huh. at using the media of his day, the newspapers. That was a cutting-edge media to get his message across to the American people. So that's one reason that speech is only 272 words, 10 sentences long, is because he, was, he wanted to speak to the American people.
2: Uh, it's uh, that that makes that, that that right that last one makes the most most sense because that in that era you give a speech like that and yes if there's a thousand people a hundred people whatever they all hear it but if you publish it in all those newspapers as you lo- as you read and listen to your book and also uh, I mentioned Killer Angels and those books that write about it, the 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 at that period really one of the most dominant ways of communicating was through the newspapers and you'll hear like uh, they'll talk about you know Jeb Stewart is is waiting for the Richmond newspapers to write about his gallivanting all over uh, Pennsylvania yes. right they were they, the, the newspapers were dominant so that makes even more sense um, does the uh, does the speech change the Civil War you said he needed to say it but and you, he knew a lot was coming in terms of the fighting but did it did it did it have an impact or is it later you yes. we see it as having been a part of what was going on I mean you know and when you look back and say wow that whole kind of tapestry was happening, uh, but or but did it actually do something?
4: Yeah, it, it, it does. It helps change the Civil War and really the country, too. It helps change the Civil War because it and the Emancipation Proclamation really do help change the war from a a fight to save the Union into a fight to save the Union and free millions of slaves. So it's, it turns it into a fight to save the Union and a fight for freedom. But it really does help reset the nation because that speech challenged the nation to refocus on its founding principles, which many people over the years have lost sight of. And, you know, Lincoln was saying in that speech, basically, he was saying as magnificent as this country is, it was born with this tragic flaw of slavery. But the Declaration of Independence mm-hmm. promised freedom and equality to all, to all. And so basically with yeah. that speech, he was saying now going forward, we're going to be a country dedicated to fulfilling the promise of the Declaration of for all people, starting with freeing some four million enslaved Americans, he called it a new birth of freedom in that country. And of course, it, it, it took a long time to fully redeem that promise. After the, the 13th Amendment, we still had a century of the KKK and and you know Jim Crow, and it's taken a long time to redeem the promise for, for other groups. It's a, it's a constant struggle. But but Lincoln is the one that really did uh, really did put the U.S. on the road to becoming a truly great nation by refocusing on those principles in the Declaration of Independence, and he did it in no small part with that speech.
2: Uh, John Cribb is our guest. He's the uh, author of Old Abe, a novel. He's also had a number of other books, American's Patriot Almanac, The Educated Child. uh, Both are New York Times bestsellers. Uh, The Human Odyssey, a world history text. He's a a prolific author. Uh, Did a bunch of stuff with um, uh, former Secretary of Education uh, uh, Bennett um, also over his career. Um, Last question, John. I mentioned at the beginning of this, they don't show the movie Gettysburg in schools much anymore, I'm told, probably in part because there's heroes on both sides. And I don't think that that's acceptable uh, to talk about the genius of Longstreet or the genius of Robert E. Lee. Um, do they teach the Gettysburg Address? Is, is, is Lincoln um, outside of the cancel uh, culture or are, are you seeing that, you know, Lincoln's uh, slipping in there, too?
4: Well, you know, I mean, some schools still teach it. I mean, it sounds like your son's school is, is doing yeah, his job. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh-huh. as you and I both know, a lot of, first of all, America, a lot of American schools just don't do a good, good job of teaching history in, in general. And we know that from years of test scores. I think the latest NAEP scores, National uh, Assessment of Edu- educational, educational Progress, shows that I think only 15% of American eighth graders actually have a decent grasp on, on American history. The rest... 85% mm-hmm. don't. Um, but right. what I think is even worse is that when history is taught, for now, for, for really for decades now, students have been taught to take a dim view of their own country.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, these yeah. lessons focus on the negative. And, and students should learn the whole story. They should learn the negative. But there's a huge amount of positive in American history. And, uh, you know, when we teach students to be cynical or worse, or you know indifferent or cynical or disdainful of their country, that is a that is a recipe for cultural suicide, and that I'm afraid is what we're engaged in in, in too many schools in this uh, in this country. Yeah. All right.
2: Well, I I appreciate very much uh, John Cribb the time to talk. Old Abe is the book, a novel from Republic Book Publishers out in paperback in a few weeks uh, get it it's really good and uh, appreciate it very much I got to run though we got need to take a break everybody we'll be right back it's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report back in a moment
1: this is the Phyllis Schlafly Report a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values opposing radical feminism and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin.
2: As an outspoken Christian, Herschel Walker was willing to pay the price to play the game when it came to football. When he ultimately joined the NFL after a hugely successful college football career, Walker was victimized by the same sort of negativity and unfair bias that has always been launched at other Christians, like Tim Tebow, Tim Brown, and Art Monk. Walker has been wrongly excluded from the NFL Hall of Fame, similarly to how the inductions of the standout Brown and Monk were unfairly delayed. Now, Herschel Walker is finding the same obstacles as he enters political life. Bible-quoting Tim Tebow left his baseball career this summer for an NFL tryout that became a sham after liberals complained endlessly about giving him a chance. Tebow was not allowed to play in an exhibition game on special teams, which is necessary for assessing a player at his level, and barely a single pass was tossed to him before he was prematurely cut. Similar sniping occurred against Herschel Walker by liberal-controlled coaches, agents, and the media, despite how Walker had speed, strength, stamina, skill, and work ethic superior to nearly everyone else in the NFL. Liberals who pulled the strings in the NFL did not want to admit that an outspoken Christian was one of its best players. Guess who alone stood up for Walker against the pot shots from the NFL after the rival U.S. Football League folded? That's right, Donald Trump did. In 1985, Trump said of Herschel Walker, he's so smooth, maybe it doesn't look like he's putting out that effort. Trump had Walker's number. The hard-working Herschel went on to become the 12th highest career NFL yardage gainer and number one if his USFL yardage was included. Walker's been smooth as a first-time political candidate, too. He proudly declares his faith as he always has. However, unlike other politicians who only bring their faith to score political points, Walker has proven his faith to be quick and powerful by coming through the crucible of the NFL. I pray our nation will soon have more political figures with faith like Herschel Walker.
1: Thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. You'll be glad to know the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly continues, upheld by Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, chairman Helen Marie Taylor, treasurer John Schlafly, a full staff in St. Louis and our nation's capital, and thousands of citizen volunteers, her eagles, across the country. You can be part of that legacy at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm out of time, and uh, that was two great interviews. Let me just finish by saying thank you to Chris Dugan, our uh, producer, who's filling in for Noah Dingley, also to Joanna for booking our guests. Please visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Check in there. You can listen to these segments. You can sign up for the Daily Week. And have a great weekend, everybody. We'll be back next week. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Talk to you then.